How many of you are old enough to think back to uh, 1962, 1963? How many of you are old enough? Let's see, how many of you are going to be honest enough to say, I'm as old as that? Oh, come on, that's good. Okay, right. Look at all the young folks here sitting with their hands down. You're either amazing looking for your age or, or you're being very un- deceitful there, you know. Okay, so I want to remind you of something that happened in the years 1962 and 63. Do you remember, any of you remember that program? It was a satirical program and it was really the start of satire on TV and you had a quite an interesting panel and they would just tear the politicians to shreds verbally and, and humiliate them and, and all that kind of thing. The person who presented it mostly was David Frost, who has now died of course, and Ned Sharon, who was a very funny guy and he was the producer and the, the, the staff, including the lady Melissa. St. Martin and, and others. They were just brilliant, uh, if you like that kind of thing. It attracted, for 1962 and 63, 12 million viewers. Now, that was a lot. Uh, uh, because, I mean, at that stage, you'd be sitting about this from your television to see it, you know, because the screens were about 9 inches, or maybe if you were lucky, you had a wide screen, which would have been 12 inches, you know, so, uh, whereas today, we're talking like 40 and 60 inches, so it's quite different. But there you go. Well, I, I would say, you could easily say last week was the week that was. I mean, what a week last week was. Share with me. 14 Thai boys rescued. Wasn't that absolutely amazing? Absolutely amazing. And incredible to see the humility of the rescuers. Um, a couple poisoned in the same way as Sergei and Yulia Skipal were poisoned and we know the big controversy that's going on about where the poison came. Two cabinet ministers, BJ, remember? Who can remember what that stands for? Who would ever forget? Boris Johnson and DD. He's not so prominent, but David Davis, and they resigned. You had the World Cup. How many of you watched, turned on to cheer for Croatia? <laughs> oh, Lord, oh, dear, oh, dear, that's terrible. That is terrible. Where's the Christian generosity here, I ask? Okay, so we saw England defeated, um, and but it was watched by 26.5 million. Can you believe that? And then Roger Federer, okay. Oh, I thought you would have been all sad. Did you see the height of that guy, Kevin Anderson? Six foot eight, I think he is. What a credible I would have been. And then some people, I just thought that happens. There would have been many people last week who received bad news about their health or some other or good news. And then, of course, we welcomed a person to Scotland, who, and we were told by him that we all like him. That's quite, that was quite an insight for me, really. Um, but there you are. It's nice that somebody can stand up and have the boldness to say, and you all like me. You know, it's a, quite an interesting thing. Now, there's a whole lot of things go on in the world that never gets that publicity. For example, think of the wars, the corruption, goes on in society, the poverty, the crime, the slavery, the people trafficking, etc. That 
goes on all the time. And that's only a wee sprinkling of the many things that are breaking people's lives and breaking people's homes and breaking communities. So when you look at all those things, there's so much suffering goes on in the world. So much of it. And then, of course, in many countries, suffering largely ignored. I read this week, just as a headline in one little place, 20 Christians were brutally attacked in a village in India because they had people coming in from the village uh, to rejoice over somebody that had been helped and coming to pray. And these uh, Hindu extremists, fundamentalists, broke in and they started and they beat them, beat them really seriously and destroyed the place that they were worshipping in. And, and so Christians in many countries suffering. And we need to be remembering in our thoughts and in our prayers the persecuted and the suffering church because they reckon that there are as many people today being persecuted as Christians as there ever have been. It's growing rather than decreasing. Now where did suffering start? I want to suggest it starts in about the year 35 AD following the death of Stephen. Do you remember that great guy who got up and boldly proclaimed Jesus and he was taken outside and he was condemned to death by stoning and everybody took off their jackets. They wanted to get really into that. Now, as I was thinking, I was thinking about my, jo- my children's years. And when we went to play football outside, what did you do? What formed the goalposts? It was your jacket. It was your jacket. And you whipped off the jacket, as you would say here. And you put it down. And you had the goalposts. And, and dear help, the, the jackets. Because, I mean, you were playing football. You were running over them and all that. But, you know, so that's it. They, go, they get, took off their jackets and they put them in this bundle and the man standing there wasn't lifting a stone but he was agreeing with everything and condoning it and encouraging it in other ways and his name was Saul and that's after that because after that we read that day great persecution broke out against the church it took the murder of that one man to motivate people and to create within them a hunger to go out and hound these people who dared to oppose their God and their faith and and that's how it all started the great day and we read Saul was there giving approval to his death now it's incredible what happens because there's that man cheering on those who were stoning to death Stephen and then the next short time, within a short time he's on his way to Damascus and Jesus intervenes in his life and he becomes a church planter church planting isn't new because he went out there and he planted churches we're all born into families, I can't understand Christians who don't tie in with a church because it was always the church it becomes a family and he went out and he planted these churches now when he was on the Damascus road he got a job description right at the beginning of his just when he became a Christian he got a job description Saul is my chosen instrument to carry my name to the Gentiles that's what Jesus said to him. You're my chosen instrument. You're going to take my news to the Gentiles. 
Now, the next part that follows this job description would have been in what we call the small print today. It would be hidden away because it wasn't attractive and like all small print. I will show him how much he will suffer for my sake. Now, can you imagine that as a job description? Would, would that entice you to sign up? So, the first part, that's exciting. I'm going to travel. I'm going to travel. I'm going to get a free pass and off I'll go and I'll see different parts of the world. I'll meet different communities. Wonderful. And then comes the second bit. But I'm afraid you're going to suffer. And you're not just going to suffer a wee bit. You're going to suffer a lot. You're going to suffer, not because you're doing anything wrong, but for me. Now imagine, how would we react to that job description? I can tell you the night I found Jesus and was led to Jesus by the evangelist, he never mentioned to me the next morning I was going back into the shipyard and it was going to be an uphill struggle. That didn't come into it. Interesting, isn't it? Jesus had a different way to present the challenge of being his disciple. He, as soon as Saul got converted, he said, this is what lies ahead. It's going to involve suffering. Now, if you haven't been told that before, this is a part of the Christian life. Look at all those people who went off to support, traveled to Russia to support uh, England. I saw them, some people gave up their jobs because they couldn't get there without their, their owner's permission. So they gave up their job and it cost them a fortune. And they were totally disappointed. But they didn't care. Just part of being that crowd. Well, you know, to be part of the crowd that serves Jesus, there's a price to pay. It's not giving up our job, maybe. It's not giving up our money, maybe. But it has certainly been willing to stand with Jesus and to suffer with Jesus. Now if you have been told that, the night you were being counselled to become a Christian, would you have signed up? I just found myself thinking, how would I feel if that was me down there? On the Damascus Road and being told you're going to travel, yes! But you're going to suffer. No reference to success. You're going to carry my name. No, oh, and by the way, they're going to crowd and flock to know me. Nothing, no mention of success. Just of suffering. When I find myself reflecting last week on that I was struck by that would I have signed up if they had told me you're going to be in a heap of trouble because if you serve me and stand up for me your way of walking the walk is going to be so different from the norm you're going to be unpopular because you're annoying them your comrades, your, your friends you're annoying them by not joining in all the things that they do would I have signed up? So I wanted to think very briefly of Paul's sufferings as a Christian. He suffered publicly. 
I, I, I'm always, always saddened when people in the Christian church uh, keep their suffering to themselves. And it was a real struggle when Margaret was diagnosed with her cancer because some people eventually got to the point in the updates I, I was sending and said, you know, I, I jumped down to paragraph three immediately because I know at the beginning of the letter you're going to be going on again about how big a burden this is for you to, sh to ask you to pray. I know it's imposing in your lives and all the rest. And, and it is, it's hard for us. We may be, we like our own privacy. And we're, we, we, we don't share when we've got real needs. And yet, I find this often as a pastor. People will say, I, you know, I've been off for the last three or four weeks, ill. And nobody came to see me. And I say, well, did anybody know you were off ill? And the, 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 the reply was, well, I thought they would have noticed but they never, they never said. And it says in the Bible, bear one another's burdens. And we have to be, to do that, we have to know you've got a burden. And so Paul suffered publicly. Everybody didn't have to go and ask him. It was so clear and so obvious. And wherever he went... Much of his problem often happened within the church, sadly. Itinerant preachers challenged his message. Now in chapter 11, we read these words, I hope you will put up with a little of my foolishness. But you're already doing that, he says. I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband to Christ... Because the church is known as the bride of Christ. He's the groom. I've promised you to the husband Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. That shows you how much he loved. He wanted the, uh, He was picturing walking with his bride, the church, and presenting it to Jesus. And Jesus would then walk with it and present it to his father. And so he had this desire. And then it says... But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's coming, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you, and we've already made it clear in the previous chapter that they have, for if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. And so there were itinerant preachers and they had come into the church at Corinth and they went into lots of other churches and they began to question the authority of the apostles uh, because they hadn't the same experience as them. They hadn't been set apart in the same way but they began to get puffed up in their own minds and so they began to challenge the message and when you look at these words about Jesus in verses 2 and 3, I, he talks about promising you to the one husband to Christ. And if you get anybody that comes in and leads you away from pure devotion to Christ, he's concerned about Christ. And these people come in and they said, he's emphasizing too much this whole thing about faith and works have gone by the board. Remember the Jewish people, faith and works. And in the Christian church, you have faith and works. But the works part has nothing to do with making us Christians. We can't work our way into acceptance with God and into the family of God. It's by faith and faith alone. And the Apostle Paul and the other Apostles 
apostles were going around that by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God but some people can't grasp that they don't want it they want to think when I stand before God I'll be able to say well I merited this no all the merit rests in Christ and so Paul was going around preaching this the gospel solely on faith in Jesus and they were opposing him and they were Paul was they were questioning faith alone and they were adding on extras if you look at the very next book in the Bible Corinthians Galatians in chapter 3 just listen to this for a moment because this is exactly what happened in Corinth you foolish Galatians who has bewitched you before your very eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified I would like to learn just one thing from you did you receive the spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard and the answer is it was by faith believing what I had heard not by works of the law and so these itinerant preachers were challenging Paul's message and standing up before the church at Corinth and saying this man isn't the full shilling really he's not giving you the real deal which is you have to live out your life according to the law and then you'll find acceptance with God Jesus fine but you have to work your way into heaven as well these preachers were narcissistic. There's no doubt about that. They were. You see that they were motivated by selfish desire uh, for attention. They wanted to be the, 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 at the center of things. And this is what we read in verses 10 to 12. If I can find it here. Uh, as surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you, God knows I do. And I will keep on boasting in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. Now you see, these people were narcissistic. They weren't interested in the church growing. All they wanted was to have a body of people who they could stand before and be worshipped. Oh, what a preacher, what a teacher. Oh, this guy's great. And so they were egotistical and they were narcissistic, wanting to promote themselves. And in doing that, they were condemning Paul and criticizing Paul. And they wanted to be called apostles. But they weren't. They were itinerant preachers who were trying to go beyond the remit God had in mind for them. So, But here were these people again publicly standing up and condemning Paul. And thirdly, they challenged his methods. Paul had a very clear method when he went around preaching. When he went into a village or a town, he didn't take any offerings because what he wanted was, when I've been to a Christian and a church has been established, I teach that church about how to give. And I teach that church about helping the church to grow. Immediately that's part and parcel of discipleship. You read Acts, the opening chapters, and that's what happened. People get converted and suddenly the money's pouring in to support Christ's church. And Paul had this belief that when he was going around preaching, he shouldn't be seen as charging the people of Corinth with a fee to hear the gospel. And so he wouldn't take any money off them. 
for his own personal things. He worked with his hands. And, and, and then he would write to other churches and he would share. And other churches would actually uh, look after and support him. Look at this in verse 7. He says, Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? He didn't charge them. He didn't expect them to support him. And in verses 8 and 9, we read, I robbed other churches. Notice that. It's not a strong language. I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And so here again, they disagreed about his monetary policy. So these itinerant preachers were going around trying to undermine the authority of the Apostle Paul and the other apostles and wanting to push themselves forward and to fleece the people. Get a standing, get a popularity, get money. And that was at the heart of their thing. And Paul was forced into actions that he was uncomfortable with. You read chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 12, and you'll find the word boasting coming over. And Paul apologizes about that all the way through. In 11 chapter 1 we read, I hope you will put up with a little of my foolishness. And then in chapter, in verse 16, he says, I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. But if you do, then receive me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. And he, was, he didn't like to do this. He didn't like to do this, but it was the only way he could get across his credentials. And so he had to defend himself and, and say, look, I'm going to boast here, but you forced me into it because I have to show you that what I've done about my standing about my preaching independently, about being an apostle but not projecting myself, projecting Christ, is justifiable. And so, in his mind, I shouldn't have to be standing up here justifying myself or justifying my message. I shouldn't have to, but I have. Now, why? Because, see, how many Bibles do you have in your house? Think of it. How many Bibles do you have? I, I, I can't part with a Bible. I have a Bible from my aunt who died many years ago. And the print is so small I could never even read. Even with these on I couldn't read it. And yet I won't part with it. And the thought of it going into the recycling bin breaks my heart. What do you do? How many Bibles have you got? Well you see we have to remember there were no Bibles in those days. So if, you have, if somebody comes to me with a, a question about the Christian faith, what do I say? Well, sit down there and I'll lecture you. No. I'll say, well, why don't you get the Bible and read it? And most people, even if it's covered in dust, will have a Bible in the house or something like that. Or we can give them one free. But there weren't those. Secondly, there were no pastors, teachers when Paul was getting to Corinth. That was just a new innovation of people being appointed to lead the churches. So how was the thing to go forward? But Paul, the apostles had to see they were entrusted with ensuring that the gospel was preached faithfully and churches were established properly. So that was the situation. And at the back of their minds, they would have this well-known verse of scripture 
given to us by Jesus. Watch out for false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Now that was the situation that Corinth was experiencing and Galatia was experiencing. People coming in. And my friends, there is a place for pronouncing the Bible. I still find it difficult when I see you diving for your mobiles when the Bible reading is announced. And I think, oh, who's, who's texted them now? Because my mind doesn't think yet. You know, you read from the t- your phone. And I think, I remember when we were going to church, we would be walking down the road with our Bibles. But now, no, 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 no. My Bible's in here. And so it is. If I want to use it, it's in here. But, you know, there weren't Bibles. Nothing. There were very few pastors because they had to be trained. And so the apostles, when they went around, they might have seemed authoritarian. They might have, like, insane. oh, see him, watch out for him. But they knew there were false prophets who were coming to exploit the, the Christian church. So Paul felt the need to prove he was genuine. And this is the way he does it. He points out his fitness to serve. He makes the point he was like Jesus. He was a Hebrew. And remember in Philippians he says, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. That's an important word. He didn't say he was a Jew. He said he was a Hebrew, which is a stronger commitment and identification than saying a Jew. Because in Jews, you had people who would do think like this. There are Jews in Israel who are atheists. And it was the same in Old Testament times. But a Hebrew, if you identified yourself as a Hebrew, you were a fundy. You know, you, you could be relied upon to teach the, teach the gospel. He was an Israelite. He was a genuine descendant from the line of Israel. I, have you read parts of the Old Testament and you've come across genealogies, have you? Oh my goodness. And they seem to go on and on. And I'm saying to God, why was all this put in? Could it not be? been put onto an addendum or something because why have I to sit and read all this and then you're looking and there's a wee statement like about Jabies in the midst of a genealogy but the, and then he said I'm a descendant of Abraham and servant of Christ in other words he's saying look you can rely on me If you want someone who's coming from the faith of the one God, you can trust me. I'm the real thing. I'm the real deal. That's what he was saying and all that. He was a fit man to serve. And secondly, notice his faithful service. This was part of his boasting. It was his self-defense. Now I want you just to watch this. I have served Jesus far more than anyone else. I have worked much harder than others. I've been put in prison more often. Now this is directly from this passage of scripture. It's the, it's, it's the New Living Translation. Two things in the one line to save space. I've been whipped many times. I faced death again and again. Five times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a whole night and day adrift in the sea. I have traveled on long journeys. I have faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I have faced danger from my own people as well as from Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities in the deserts and on the seas. I have faced danger from 
men who claim to be believers but are not. I have worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I have been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. I've shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Is this man fit to serve us or he not? Is this man in a position where we could be relying upon him? Of course we could. And he's reminding them of what he had already said in his first letter. He said, I go hungry and thirsty. I am in rags and I'm homeless. I work hard with my own hands. I am cursed. I'm slandered. I'm seen as the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. This is the man who was said, you're going to travel. And you're going to, you know, see loads of new cultures and things that you've never imagined. But in the process, it's going to be hard going. You're going to suffer. Did Paul know about suffering? Of course he did. Did Paul complain about his suffering? No. What he's doing here is he's just validating his claim under Christ to be an apostle and showing this is the mark of an apostle. He found it very difficult, but his motivation was Christ-like. He loved the people he was writing to. Why? Because I do not love you, God knows I do. He loved those people and he wanted them to see that God had trusted him and anointed him and commissioned him and so he should be relied upon. He loved Christ's church and he felt compelled to challenge the critics. Now my friends, this is 2018 18. and you know something there's still a need to do that because there are people still rising up in Christ's church who need challenged I remember a simple thing in a place where I was serving and one Wednesday night at the prayer meeting there was this lady she was an absolute saint of God you look forward to bumping into her down the street you know the way you see some old folks like you would see me and you would say oh nip into the shop quickly I'll never get away from him but with Miss Wilson it was the opposite you wanted to talk to her and she was a saint radiated Christ and she was sitting in the prayer meeting and I was witness to this lady coming in young lady a young teacher, and sat down beside Miss Wilson, and I suddenly thought, am I hearing things? She said to Miss Wilson, oh, if only you had what I had. And what she was meaning was, she spoke with tongues. And she was attending a meeting where she was progressing and speaking with tongues. And she was almost making that lady feel inferior. And when I listened on and then spoke to her afterwards and spoke to Miss Wilson, I realized there was a false teaching going around here, which was that the sign that you had been, quote, baptized in the Holy Spirit was you would speak with tongues. That is not taught in the Bible. It isn't. And I had to write a statement of faith about the Holy Spirit. I sent it to the Baptist Union to be approved or, 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 or scrapped. And it was sent back to me saying, go for it. This is great. And we used that. And it was painful. 
It was painful to challenge that. And it meant that young couple left the church and started up another church. It was painful. But you can't have folks like that dear, wonderful saint of God being made to feel she wasn't the full shilling because of something which was never taught in the Bible. We need to be careful. And if we're going to be like Paul in the drill, we need to know God's word and what it teaches. Do you really feel you know God's word? How often have you heard me saying this? I apologize. But this is a bugbear with me. How many people read Christian books and spend hours reading Christian books but minutes reading the book, which is the Bible. It's all wrong. It's all wrong. It's the Bible we should be reading. It's the Bible we should be focusing upon. We should be opening our Bible every day and saying to God, speak to me, teach me, help me to become wise spiritually. And instead of turning to all these Christian books, turn to the book. And we need to know God's word. And the church is being impoverished today and becoming more and more impotent today because people, as Christians, are not reading and studying and being taught the Bible by God. And then, knowing it, we should move forward sensitively to face the challenge. Now that's, that in itself is the sermon. But I, ju- I will just skip through this. And if any- anybody wants to read my notes, you can get them after. I- give me your name. One other thought about suffering. Paul knew about that. We've already seen that. And he expands on it in chapter 12, verses 1 to 10. Look at his spiritual journey. He continues to boast about his work, walk with God. God wanted to prepare him for the huge task ahead. And as soon as he was converted, he said, I went off into Arabia for two years, probably more, between two and three years. And there he was taught by God. He didn't even rush to see the apostle Peter. He rushed off to Arabia to a sort of retreat center where he could study and learn from God. And he was granted unique, special experiences. Remember, he talks about inexpressible things. God really entered this man's life and instructed him. He was carried up into the heavens and he was given thoughts about God that he wasn't even allowed to share. And he was in a place... What I'm asking here is... Was that in place? He wasn't with the 12 disciples. Was this God saying, look, for your, if you're going to be one of my apostles, you have to get this special instruction. And so he went off for three years and he went from Israel to Cilicia, Galatia. Do you know, it's estimated he's, he's traveled something like 10,282 miles on what we used to call in Ireland, Shanks' pony. Your feet... No travel insurance either. He off he went. His suffering, I'm rushing here, do I want to finish? To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassing great revelations, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three, three possibilities. It could have been a spiritual battle 
that he was facing. Because we have no identification of this. So in Romans 7, remember he said, I know what I should be doing, but I'm not doing. I know what I shouldn't be doing, but I'm doing. And he had facing this turmoil. Could it have been that? We don't know. A persecution and long-term results. He said in Galatians, I bear in my body the marks of Christ. So he was beaten all those times. Of course his body would be marked. A physical illness. I remember when the Living Bible came out many years ago, it says, God gave me a painful physical ailment, it was translated as. It could have been an, an, a physical illness, which is why he said to the Galatians, thank you for loving me. You were willing to give me your eyes, and some people think he had an eye problem. So, and when you read it, it reminds you of Job. Uh, where we learn of spiritual warfare. Remember Satan? And when you read of the, the thorn, there was given unto me a messenger of Satan to torment me. But in Job and in Paul's life, we learned Satan may have given him this thorn, but God was in charge. And he was kept humble, but he was tormented in the process. I was given this thorn in the flesh to torment me. Despite all the suffering, he remained faithful. How did he remain faithful? My friends, each of us here, I've said at the beginning, is called to suffer. How can we suffer and be faithful? God's solution. He prayed three times for the thorn to be removed. Can you think of anyone else who prayed three times for something to be removed? Does Gethsemane mean... Jesus in Gethsemane did the same. Jesus was strengthened by an angel in Gethsemane. Paul was encouraged by the Lord. And God said to him, I have a better experience for you than removing the thorn. I'm not going to take the thorn away. What are you going to do then? Pain will remain, but my power will change everything. You will discover in times when you feel so weak just how strong my power really is. Did that happen? Of course it did. Once I heard that, I quit focusing on the handicap and began appreciating the gift. I just let Christ take over. And the weaker I get, the stronger I become. When I am weak, then I am strong. Look at those words. They're glowing. They're pulsating with life and confidence. This thorn torments me. But through Christ's grace, I'm able to cope. And not just to cope, but to conquer. And that's where I want to finish today. I do not know what's on your head in your head and what's on your heart today. I don't know that. But maybe you're struggling, maybe you're suffering. Life is just pressing in on you and you're breaking your heart about this or that or the other thing. I don't know. But whatever is tormenting you, there's an answer. And the answer is in God's amazing grace. And in our opening hymns, we sang about God's grace. In between the two hymns, for, I said, and this grace is amazing. And we started to say, amazing grace. And God said, you may suffer, but I can give you the strength and the help to cope and to be more than a conqueror. How can I be so sure of that? For 18 months, 
I saw it. I saw it. When we would be up in the middle of the night with Margaret, so, so miserable, and, and, and at some time saying, Oh God, help me, and struggling. He always did help. He always did help. And God's grace was made perfect in her weakness. All I'm saying here is, whatever the problem might be this morning, God is able to give us the strength and the grace to be more than a conqueror and to live victorious for him. I finish with this little poem. I prayed, Lord, take away the pain. Remember, child, he said, the stain upon my cross, the stain of red. With quickening tears, I hung my head. Oh, take away the sorrow, Lord, I prayed. Remember, child, the sword that pierced my heart, the Savior said, when those I love and trusted fled. In deepest shame, I hung my head. At last I prayed, Lord, sanctify the suffering and the grief. Then I knew the peace and joy that I might share Gethsemane. And lingering there, I glimpsed beneath the, beyond the darkened sod, the shining citadel of God. We need to, when we're suffering, lift our eyes to Jesus who suffered so much, so, so much. Why? Because he loves us. He wanted to give us a life that was abundant and a life that was futuristic in heaven. How can we complain of suffering when he suffered for us? So whatever the heartache today, whatever the physical pain, the mental anguish, whatever's going on in our life, God says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Can we bring our weakness to God this morning? And can we say, help me, help me, and he will. Let us pray. Our Father God, we thank you for allowing us this time to be with you. And may we rise to go from this service renewed, refreshed, and ready to face whatever challenge comes into our lives, knowing that your grace is sufficient. And so, Father God, take each one of us and use us and give us the courage to rely on your promises and to serve you faithfully. To walk the walk and, as we were reminded earlier, to talk the talk. So hear these prayers. And now, Father, at the end of our service, we face this new week. And we pray that you will walk with us into the days that lie ahead. 
and may you be glorified in our lives and through our lives wherever we live. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the companionship of the Holy Spirit be with us all this day and evermore. Amen.